If you have your Bibles with you, I would uh, ask that you turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. We have been starting um, a series in this wonderful book, this book that is the Old Testament story of redemption. It is the pattern of God's salvation that we see worked out uh, in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, freedom from slavery and from sin. This evening we will look at Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. If you would please give attention to, to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And most of all, the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Exodus chapter 2. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to their water to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we come to you this evening and we ask, Lord, that you would teach us from your word, that you would remind us that we are in need of you, that you, oh Lord, have all the answers, that you, oh Lord, are good and righteous and true. And so we ask this evening that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, our need of him, and his provision for us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Have you ever been impatient? Have you ever found yourself looking at your watch, waiting in frustration for something to happen? Maybe for some of you children, that occurred at 4 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day. 
it seemed as if the whole world was frozen and that the time would never arrive. Maybe for those of us who are adults, it occurs when you are sitting in traffic in a construction zone. The road seems more like a parking lot than a road. And it goes agonizingly slow as the minutes pass by, as you waited to be clear of the delay. And it seemed so unfair, doesn't it, to have to put your life on hold for something else. Or maybe there was a difficult time when you were waiting in a hospital or in a doctor's office to hear the news, a report from the physician. The wait there is not merely annoying or frustrating, it could be actually painful. If only the appointed time would come, you might think. I just can't bear waiting any longer. At least when I know what's happening, I'll know how to pray. I'll know what to do. I think we have all experienced this at one time or another, and if we are honest, waiting is not something that Americans do well. We have fast food, 15-minute oil changes, jet airplane travel, and miracle-quick exercise machines. We want what we want, and we want it now. We can't wait to get to the real thing. The waiting time is just wasted time. Time without a purpose. As a matter of fact, we even have a phrase for it. Downtime. Isn't that our attitude? I know that I often see events in that light. But what does the Bible say about downtime? What does God think about a waiting period? After all, He's the one who created it. At the beginning of chapter 2, when we looked at God's providence, we saw that God controls what might seem to be the most minute details of our lives. Babies crying, chance encounters, even the heart of a king. If in fact God's providence governs all his creatures, and all their actions, as the Catechism says, then God must be in control, not only of the events in a time of action, but he must also be in control of events during the downtime. Our text this evening covers just such a period of time. For the people of Israel and for Moses, this is their appointment in the waiting room. It is the prelude, as it were, to God's providence. I would like us to look this evening at a text that covers a great deal of time in just a little space. Our text picks up in the middle of chapter 2. After having seen God with his covenant promise to his people... We've seen the people of Israel suffering under the hands of the Egyptians. And we've seen God being involved in the greatest details of life. We saw Moses' parents respond in faith to the circumstances in which God put them. And here our text picks up at verse 11. As we look at the second half of Exodus 2, we will see a waiting period, a prelude to God's providence we will see that God, according to His magnificent plan, 
prepares the exact time for his providential redemption of Israel. We'll also see that God's plan is not always on our schedule. And sometimes we have to wait to see God's providence. In the end, though, we will see that God's timing is always perfect and that we are called to wait through these preludes of life with an attitude of faith and hope. We will see that God's providence is not according to our plan and that, secondly, God's plan and time is always perfect. Let's begin then by looking at verse 11. Verse 11 begins a new episode in the redemption of Israel. Now, we know, and any faithful Israelite would know, that God would redeem His people. God had already promised this to them. He had promised to Abraham that He would make of him a great nation. God had promised that the people of Israel would be in bondage for 400 years, after which he would deliver them. We see this from Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So, The Israelites and we understand that this is going to happen. God has promised it. He will do it. But God doesn't tell us that he will do it exactly when we want it to happen. And so as we look at the end of verse 10, we see Moses being put into the Nile and being drawn out by Pharaoh's daughter. And then verse 11 picks up one day when Moses had grown up. Now, We need to get used to the fact that God works on His time. And oftentimes, that is much longer than we would desire. God's promise was for 400 years Israel would be in bondage. Now, I'm going to say something very obvious to you. 400 years is a really long time. It's almost twice as long as our country has been in existence. It is no short period of time. But yet, as the time draws near for that 400 years to end, now it seems that there is hope. An Israelite is born, and he is placed in the very palace itself. Some commentators say that Moses was the heir to the throne. But even if he was not the heir... He was at least in a powerful position. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, you can imagine if you were an Israelite. You would know that God had promised to redeem you. You had waited a very long time, generation upon generation. And now it's finally here. Moses is in the palace, one of our own. How will God work this redemption? And yet, they have to wait... 40 more years. Stop and think about that for a moment. From verse 10 to verse 11, 40 years go by, the Bible tells us. That's an awful lot of waiting in a very short span text. And again, if you are anything like me, you don't like to wait 
for anything for any period of time. I was just having a discussion on our drive here about certain traffic lights that I hate most in Katy because they're long. And I don't like to sit at them. Well, no traffic light is 40 years long, is it? I hope not. But that is what Israel is doing. They are waiting. Don't let the fact that there is no interval from verse 10 to verse 11 hide that there are 40 years packed in that little space. We know this because Stephen tells us this in Acts chapter 7. He says of Moses, When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Imagine being an Israelite. 320 years of oppression. Rumors of a Hebrew in the palace. And yet so much time goes by that an entire generation passes while Moses is in the palace. God is still being faithful in that waiting time. And so Moses, now our text tells us, had grown up. The emphasis is on his maturity. When Moses was grown, he goes out and he makes a conscious decision to go out and to see what is happening with his brethren. This is a very interesting text that we are looking at this evening because it is unusual we have not one but two inspired commentaries on this text. Stephen gives us a commentary on this text in Acts chapter 7 describing what Moses was doing and what was in his mind. And then Hebrews in chapter 11 gives us another inspired commentary on this text. And so we can gain a great deal even from outside of the text itself by inspiration of the Spirit. And we are told that this is a conscious decision that Moses had made. That he went out and sought out his brothers. He was consciously, on some level, giving up his status. How many would consciously seek mockery? Or slavery? Or oppression? In effect, that is what Moses is doing. He is looking for his people. He is seeking them out. He desires to be identified with them on some level. In my mind, I can only really think of one example. It just happens to be an even better example. It's the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his status to identify with his people, to come down to them, to be with them and to lift them up. Paul tells us of this. In Philippians chapter 2. So why does Moses then go out among the Israelites? The first reason I think is because of the love for his brothers that God had put in his heart. Moses had seen their burdens and he wanted to deliver them. He went out to his people, Exodus tells us, and looked on their burdens. And seeing one of them suffering wrong, 
Stephen tells us in Acts 7. He defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. So you see, Moses does not stumble upon this. Again, we need to do some tweaking of the script of the movie of the Ten Commandments. In the movie, Moses goes out and he simply has this situation fall in front of him. And he acts rashly and emotionally. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is is that it had been laid upon his heart that his people, he knew he was an Israelite. That news didn't need to be sprung on him. I think that one of the best ways to understand this is as he was being nursed and brought up by his true mother, she probably told him who he was. And so Moses knew who his people were. He saw them suffering wrong and he went out and he wanted to be a part of the deliverance of Israel. Now, we don't know if God had spoken to him already and told him that he would be a deliverer, but you can imagine Moses can put two and two together as well as anyone else. He could say to himself, Israel is enslaved. They're under the thumb of Pharaoh. Who in all of Israel has any power to lift the burden of Israel? Well, it's me. I'm the prince of Egypt. God must have put me here For this purpose. And so you can imagine that Moses understood his purpose. We also know from the book of Hebrews that Moses had faith in the promises of God. It says this in Hebrews 11 verse 12. Excuse me, 24. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses knew that God would deliver Israel, and he understood that he was to be the instrument of that deliverance, although how that would come about, he did not know. But he had faith and trust in the promises of God. But there's an interesting fact that we see in the text that helps us to see a bit into Moses' mind. Look with me, if you would, at verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. There is still fear in Moses' heart. He's looking around to see if anyone can see. He's not rash, but he didn't see God's timing. Because after all, God's timing was 400 years. And if we do the math, we're only at 360. And so Moses may have thought that now the time of deliverance had come, but it had not yet. And yet he can't wait. He seizes the opportunity Before him. And so he slays the Egyptian and hides him. And then the next day he goes out and he thinks to himself that he will continue to act in the role that God has placed him. Because if you think about Moses, Moses' job description is really twofold. The first is 
lead the Israelites out of bondage. And then the second is, be a ruler and a judge over Israel. We know from the rest of the book of Exodus that Moses was in charge of judging the people. They brought their cases to him. As a matter of fact, they brought so many cases to him, his father-in-law said to him, basically, you're going to kill yourself. You need to distribute some of this out. You can't judge every single case. That's Moses' job description. And so he comes out and he sees two Israelites struggle. And he goes to the one, our text says, who is in the wrong. Now, I want you to notice, if anyone knew how to perform in accordance with Matthew 18, it's Moses. He goes to the one who's in the wrong, and he goes to him very mildly. He doesn't strike him. He doesn't walk up to him and say, I'm the prince of Egypt, you're going to jail. He just looks at him and he says, why are you striking your fellow? Why are you striking your companion? He's trying to instill in him unity of the people of Israel. He says, isn't it bad enough that the Egyptians strike you all the time? Why do you have to hit each other? And what we see here is a rejection of Moses in a specimen by the people of Israel. The one looks at Moses and he says, who made you to be a prince and a judge over us? And then the accusation flies. Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? This is a rejection of Moses. Now, I want you to notice that the Hebrew doesn't see the providence of God either. Here, God not only brings someone to defend Israel from her enemies, but to keep them on the right path. But instead, the Israelite rejects Moses and he rejects the truth that he brings. It is instructive for us to see how those who are untamed by God act. They refuse to submit to God. If you think about it, if the lowest of all the Egyptians had struck this Israelite, he wouldn't have murmured one complaint. But when Moses seeks to instruct him, he gives the worst of possible accusations. And there is a warning here that the Hebrew did not listen, and instead he replied with venom. A mild rebuke was taken as a design on his life. So why does Moses fail here? It's not the wrong attitude. He speaks mildly. It's not the wrong action. He's doing what he should be doing, promoting peace among Israelites. Why he fails is because he didn't see God's time. And God still needed to show Moses his methods and his means. And so that's why this is a prelude to God's providence. Moses would come to be a plaguer of Egypt and a judge of Israel in the future. Don't let the fact that you know the end of the story hide this providence from you. And so Moses 
is at this point not perfect. His fear is evidenced. His obedience is stained by sin. And yet it is still acceptable to God by God's mercy and faith. When Hebrews 11 speaks of this incident, it speaks of it in the context of faith. And there is no mention of fear. What happens here? God meets Moses by faith. God is gracious to Moses. There is a pardon that is ready for those who have hesitation and fear. Moses, at this point, is not prepared to lead Israel. He is not ready to do the task that God has assigned to him. His wrath will not produce righteousness. And so it's not only the time, but also the way in which Moses would see providence fulfilled that needs to be corrected. God's providence will be fulfilled not by a sword, but by a staff. Not by wrath, but by meekness. And so we see the second thing from this text this evening. That God's providence is perfect and a source of blessing. This affront that comes to Moses is a blessing. You could imagine what is going through Moses' mind. I don't deserve this. Why won't he listen to me? Why am I having to suffer this? Why won't God bring me victory now? All of the things that go through our minds when God in his providence brings a delay, brings a waiting time into our lives. Why doesn't God fix this now? Perhaps as we see God's purpose in Moses' life, it will help us to search in our own lives for the waiting time. This pause, this prelude, is a blessing to Moses. Because Moses has to flee from Egypt, and in fleeing from Egypt, God will complete his training. God will shelter Moses until the day of redemption comes. Moses flees, but God is not done with him. God is just starting with him. And so he flees to Midian. Which again, if we think about it in terms of happenstance, he just happens to go to a place where there are God-fearing people. He just happens to come to a well where the daughters of a priest of God are found. He is at a place where he can get shelter and where Pharaoh cannot reach him. Moses has been put in just the right place by God. When he's in Midian, it will harden him to hardship. It will get him used to poverty. It will humble him. His time in Midian will give to him a life of contemplation and devotion. Egypt had prepared him for one aspect of his task. Egypt had made him a scholar and a soldier. But it couldn't show him a life of communion with God. Only time with God could do that. Do you ever feel stripped of all friends or all support at times? Perhaps God is asking you to only lean on him at those times. Perhaps he is preparing you for his providence in your life. 
And so faith is what sustains Moses. He endured as seeing him who is invisible, Hebrews tells us. That is how Moses endured. And so what Moses does is he doesn't try to appease Pharaoh. He doesn't sink into despair. He exercises faith. And even though God appears to be delivering Israel, not at this time. He appears to be declining to deliver Israel. What he is really doing is he is fitting Moses for the task of delivering Israel. Are all of these things coincidences? Jethro's daughters at the well? Moses fleeing to the descendants of Abraham? The fact that he helped the girls, the fact that Jethro invited him home, that Jethro was a priest, the fact that Jethro's name means the friend of God. These are not coincidences. This is God at work in Moses' life, bringing about redemption. I want you to notice, too, that Moses' faith did not leave him during the hard times. As he flees from the palace, as he flees from Egypt, as he is not even sure what he will do, he remains trusting the Lord. We see this in the name of his two sons. Gershom, which means, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses knows that land is not his home. He knows that he needs to get back to his people, the people of God. His second son, Eliezer, which means God is my help. So even in exile, Moses is looking to the Lord. These little details show his mindset. And in reality, God has prepared a place and a family for Moses. And God's grace and perfect providence are seen in the fact that Moses is calm and content. Look at verse 21. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. It was pleasing to him. He was in the right place. He was trusting God. He had realized that God was in control and that he would bring about his redemption in his time, in his way. And so Moses has learned a lesson that I think we often need to learn. He slowed down and looked to God. So often our first reaction is, what can we do? How can we resolve this? What's the quickest and best way to get something accomplished? And we expect God to catch up to us. When the truth is, it is God's plan that is successful. It is God's purpose that will win the day. Let me ask you this question. How are you emotionally when you are denied what you want? Do you believe that God's providential hand is not in it? Moses left his throne... Moses left his family. Moses left his people, perhaps forever. But you see, he trusted the Lord. And then what the Lord had for his life was what was best. We also can understand from this text that we are not to grow weary while we wait upon the Lord. 
you perhaps, like Moses, may think that you are doing no good right now. You wonder when God will start to use you. When something exciting will come across the path. When God will bring fireworks. When God will use you to convert dozens. When God will use you to testify to His truth. But now everything seems dull and ordinary. I want you to think about Moses now. Moses' job is to watch sheep. I don't know that there is anything more boring or more seemingly useless in the world than watching animals. Think about it. Moses had been right near the throne. Moses had hoped to be used by God to redeem his people. And now he has to wait on God. And God is using that time for his good. Finally, wait for God. Do not rush ahead of him, either in time or in method. We are taught throughout all of the scriptures to wait upon the Lord. Imagine that you were Simeon in the New Testament and you had waited your whole life for the Christ to come. But the scripture tells us that the Christ would be born when the fullness of time had come and not a moment before. And so all you can do is wait. God will be the judge of what's important. God will bring about His providence in His time. We need to seek Him, to see His ways, to trust His timing for us to truly know that we are serving the Lord. Let's pray.